turn to John chapter 16 again. Last Sunday we talked about persecution, which uh, uh, we realize that there is a certain amount of persecution that we're going to uh, experience. And there are Christians who are experiencing this persecution uh, across the world. And uh, we probably can say uh, we don't have as much persecution here in our country because of the freedoms that we have. But uh, as we continue on, as we go verse by verse through the book of John, we're in chapter 16, and we're ready to uh, finish up verse 4 and then continue on from there. And I want to begin by asking you this morning, uh, do, you know, do you really want to know how to live the Christian life? Uh, is that your desire? Do you really want to know how to effectively uh, witness for the Lord. Certainly, if you are truly born again and have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you should have these desires as believers. And sometimes you, like me, we struggle in fulfilling the deepest desires of obedience and faithful witness. Uh, we may even face frustration sometimes and despair uh, considering the demands of the Christian life compared with how we perform. And I want to pass along to you today that that there is help. Uh, you probably knew that, but uh, yes, you and I face incredible task of trying to live faithfully for the Lord and effectively proclaim the gospel to the world. But unless there is divine assistance, and I mean lots of it, because uh, uh, we can't do it on our own. We just are not able to do this kind of work on our own. Well, I cannot get the job done. You can't get the job done unless we have help from the Lord. And we need to keep in mind what is taking place here in this passage uh, with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was preparing his disciples. Uh, they're going to walk and work without him in his bodily presence. Uh, they had the privilege, the, uh, the uh, opportunity to walk day by day with him right alongside of him, uh, of them. And uh, they were accustomed to uh, asking him for counsel, calling on him to bail them out in difficult situations. And of course, now Jesus begins to really press home to the disciples that he's actually going to be gone, physically gone from them. He was going to go back to, the, he's going to go back to the father and they would be with Without his constant presence in their midst. Now, just when they thought they were functioning pretty good and things were going well, now Christ is uh, going to be leaving them. But consider what must have been going on in their minds. They surely wondered how they could be able to live with the same kind of distinction uh, that was their practice while Christ was watching their every step. And they probably wondered how they could be able to continue on with the ministry which they had been involved in in carrying out uh, that ministry under his watchful eye. And Christ had to some degree uh, shield his disciples from the intensity of the persecution since most of the persecution was focused on him. But the disciples would now face intense persecution themselves as he would be gone. And they were going to have to live this, so to speak, without his presence. Uh, and we too would face the question, how are we going to obey Christ in our walk? How are we going to handle the opposition from the world? How are we going to be a faithful witness of the gospel? How do we do these things without Jesus Christ actually standing here uh, next to us and helping us and guiding us along the way? 
And that was a legitimate question which the disciples needed to have answered. And I trust you want that answered as well. And there is an answer. It's found in the words of the Lord Jesus, which we just read moments ago in our text. And we can walk and we can talk and we can uh, uh, do the things that a Christian needs to do because we have a God-given advantage of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You're not at a deficit, but you have the advantage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're talking about today here from John chapter 16. Notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit and the believer. The Holy Spirit and the believer. You need to see that Jesus is giving a solution to the sorrow which would invade their hearts as disciples. Sorrow was so real to them at that moment they could not see past their grief and recognize that Christ was giving them a divine solution. Uh, Perhaps you find yourself overcome at times by the perception of life that it is there is just so many difficulties. There's so much sorrow. There's so much despondency. It just seems to overwhelm you at times and you can't see beyond it to find the solution. Well, take heart. Christ Jesus, the Lord has spoken and what he has said can give you courage to press on as a believer. It's important to see that this text naturally divides into two parts. In the first, we kind of see the the portion of relationship of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And in the second, we'll see the Holy Spirit's work in the unbeliever. Now, much of the New Testament epistles speak of the Spirit's role in empowering us in both walk and witness. Obviously, we cannot look at all the passages this morning, but we will see a sampling as we consider the implications of verse 7. Notice what verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for I, if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And what Jesus spoke may have seemed strange to these disciples at that very uh, time, but the truth of it became wellspring of faithful Christian living in the days ahead. So we need to understand, as the disciples needed to understand, first of all, the divinely given advantage. I spoke of this advantage moments ago, but let's just talk about that a little bit. If something is to your advantage... That means it's some way profitable for you or helpful to you or gives you a edge, a unique edge, perhaps. And this is precisely what our Lord was getting across to his disciples. Though they felt that having Jesus walking with them in the flesh was a tremendous advantage, Jesus tells them that there's an even greater advantage uh, to be found in the coming of the Spirit of God. Now, when we consider the earthly ministry of Christ... We must recognize he was a man, just as you and I are. And yet he was still God. He retained his deity. As a man, Jesus Christ had all the physical limitations and needs that you and I have. With this, Jesus could only be in one place at one time, basically. Uh, And if you remember that occasion when Jesus was on the mountain with his inner circle and they witnessed his transfiguration, uh, and Jesus was on the mountain and the rest of the disciples, they're trying to deliver a young boy from his demonization, and they could not do it. Uh, They needed the Lord Jesus there to be present with them so he could help them. As soon as Jesus came down from the mountain, he saw the commotion and he was uh, was appealed to that he might deliver the boy from his demonized state. 
<coughs> Excuse me. And this uh, instance, Jesus came to the rescue. He bailed them out, so to speak. But he pointed to the day that he would not be there bodily in their presence. And we would all agree that that was a wonderful advantage to have Jesus standing right there to help them. Yet Jesus tells us that there's even a greater advantage uh, when he returns to the Father as our great intercessor and high priest and sends to us the Holy Spirit. What are these advantages? Well, number one, the Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. It says in Romans 8, 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The Apostle Paul uh, interchanges the designations of the Spirit in this verse, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Now that's not a reference to two Holy Spirits, uh, but one Spirit who is the other member of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said last week when we spoke of the Holy Spirit coming from the Father and from the Son. For the Spirit to indwell you is to have Christ in spirit indwelling you. This is why Jesus could point uh, to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come permanently to indwell believers. And he could say at that day, ye shall know that I am in my father and ye in me and I in you. John fourteen twenty. And if the spirit does not live in you, then you're not a true believer. But because he dwells in you, you will face no demand without God himself and all of his adequacy facing that demand with you. So the Holy Spirit indwells you. We'll look at this once again uh, in a little bit here. But notice, secondly, the Holy Spirit is never bound. Jesus, while he was here on earth, was in one place at one time, as we illustrated on the Mount Transfiguration scene earlier, Uh, He willingly submitted himself to the physical laws of nature. But the Spirit knows no such boundaries. He's just as powerfully with us right now as, say, uh, our missionary Tim Smith, uh, some 6,400 miles away, can be with, the Holy Spirit can be with him right now as well. Uh, And all of our missionaries, all of the people that you know, maybe around the world, that are Christians, The Holy Spirit never takes a break. He never needs a rest. He never falls asleep. He never is distracted, nor is he overtaxed by all the needs. He's not inadequate, but he's very adequate to work in all of our needs. The promise Jesus made at the end of the Great Commission, he said, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And that finds its fulfillment in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not bodily with us or simply mentally with us. He is actually with us in the divine person of the Holy Spirit. Now, this divine given advantage is also seen as we secondly recognize the Holy Spirit's work. And we're talking about in the believer once again. The Holy Spirit is a worker. He's not simply some atmospheric force that makes things a little better. No, he's actually actively working in your life, fulfilling the promises of God, bringing us the full measure of sonship in Christ. Now, notice some of the works of the Spirit in the life of the believer. First of all, the Holy Spirit regenerates. He regenerates you and births you into the family of God. 
Jesus said in John chapter 3, when talking to Nicodemus, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It was Ezekiel who prophesied of this in his uh, wonderful chapter that tells us of the valley of the dry bones. Uh, It's in Ezekiel 37. It says there, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there was very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and you bring up, uh, bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. You see, it's the Spirit of God that's brought us out of the deadness of our old life, just as He did with those dry bones. And He's quickened our dead minds and brought us into a glorious, saving understanding of the gospel. He has birthed us into God's family. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And Nicodemus couldn't understand how that could be. And so it's by the Spirit of God that we're born into God's family. Secondly, God, uh, the Holy Spirit gives us an eternal witness. Uh, this was a witness that we're truly saved. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, it says in Romans 8, 16. Uh, we don't have to depend upon some other person to assure us of our salvation. I think that would be a mistake. But God the Spirit Himself comes to us in a unique way and breathes assurance in our hearts that we are His and He is ours. And then again, I want to mention the Spirit of the Holy Spirit indwells us. I've already mentioned that, but the indwelling a Holy Spirit is the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of the believer in Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, The Spirit would come and go from the saints, empowering them for service, but not necessarily remaining in them. Jesus revealed to his disciples, here is a new role of the Spirit of truth and how it would be played out in their lives. He says in John 14 and verse 17, He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The Apostle Paul wrote, What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. So the Holy Spirit indwells us. Number four, the Holy Spirit seals us. If uh, the keeping power of salvation depended upon us in our performance... We would fall the first day that we got saved, wouldn't we? We would blow it big time. But you know what? Thank God the Spirit seals us in Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And nothing can break that seal. 
That seal is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. You know, a seal in the ancient world was usually a mark of a signet ring. It was made in hot wax to give a document authenticity and security and authority. And when a king sealed a letter with his signet ring, and then that unbroken seal showed the security of the contents. It showed its authenticity of being from the king. It showed its authority in conveying the will of the king. Now for us, the seal uh, by the Spirit shows that we're really, we really do belong to Christ. And that we really are secure for all of eternity. And that's why Paul adds in that same verse that the Spirit is a down payment and a, in, uh, a earnest Uh, is the word he used, a down payment of more to come. Uh, God has also, uh, has so invested his saving work in you that he has come to you in the Holy Spirit to assure you and secure you for the eternal inheritance that is yours in Christ. And so he seals us. Number five, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. This is an ongoing process of the Christian life. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Sanctification is that definite act of the Holy Spirit whereby we are made holy in Christ and we're brought into conformity to His divine image. The Spirit begins this work immediately upon our salvation and continues it until we stand before Christ complete. Number six, the Holy Spirit empowers us. This enables us to be a witness for the Lord. Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Listen, God does not command us to do anything as Christians that He has not already given us the power through the Spirit to do. This does not mean that we are androids or robots. But the Spirit, right in the midst of all of our labors, comes to give us power to bear witness to Jesus Christ. It's Spirit-empowered witness that lodges in the minds and hearts of unbelievers and brings them to the Savior. And that's why Paul testified to the Corinthians and said, "In my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's a wonderful passage there. The Holy Spirit empowers us, and then the Holy Spirit fills us. This is so we might be under His control in our life, in our ministry. Ephesians 5.18 says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That passage continues and shows how the Spirit's filling affects our ministry to one another. In our worship, in our attitude of thanksgiving, even our submission to one another as brethren uh, in Christ. He controls what He fills so that He has filled uh, what He has filled might bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Now we could go on and we could look at many, many more, but I believe that kind of gives us a pretty good picture, doesn't it? 
and convinces us that, you know, the Holy Spirit is really working in the believer. Uh, it's a distinct advantage that you have over the unbeliever. And what I've said concerning the Spirit's work in the believer is not true of the unbeliever. I mean, I say with all reverence concerning what Christ said, you are better off with the Spirit dwelling in you than you are having Jesus walk beside you bodily. Think about that. And understand, that's not in any way slighting the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, uh, it'd be wonderful to have him right here sitting right next to us, wouldn't it? But you know what? We have a greater advantage, and Je- that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. You're going to have the Holy Spirit living in you wherever you go. Instead of simply applying what Christ has spoken of this verse, you have a glorious advantage of God dwelling in you continually and not just being with you sometime and not with you other times. Listen, be encouraged by that. The Spirit has come and He's at work in you both to in your walk and in your witness. But then there's the Holy Spirit and His relationship to the world. The Holy Spirit in the world... Here's a different relationship between the Holy Spirit and the unbeliever. You'll notice in verse 7, it says, you. You find that little word there? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Now, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the disciples, and he's talking about you and me. And verse 8 points to the Spirit's relationship with The world, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. The world is talking about those who are not believers. And our Lord says the Spirit's activity toward the world will be to reprove. The word translated reprove has the basic sense to convict, in the sense of convincing. When speaking of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he is convincing the heart of one's spiritual need. The, the word also has the idea of expanding uh, the meaning of reprove or rebuke or to expose. And the following verse then tells us how God's Spirit will rebuke of sin, convince of the need of salvation, reveal what is right. Now before we see what the Spirit does in convicting, we need to consider how He does this. <clears throat> is this something that He does completely apart Uh, from some type of instrumentation. Uh, Certainly the Spirit is capable of doing what He does without any sort of instrumentation, or perhaps there are times when He indeed does this, but you know what He chiefly uses? Two things. One, the Word of God, and the life and the lips of a believer. Those are the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to work in the hearts and lives of those who do not know Christ. The Word of God and the life and the lips of, the, of believers. The Word of God reveals God to us. It testifies to us of the divine requirements for all men. Talks about the law of God. The Word tells us of God's redemptive work through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Word is a sharp, two-edged sword that pierces to the depths of a man's being and reveals what is inside of him, his sin. It's also a light that focuses upon the glories of the cross and the way of salvation. And the Spirit will take the Word of God, written and spoken, to pierce the hearts of sinners and point them to a saving work of Christ. And this is one reason why we give much attention to the reading of the Word in our services. 
And that's why we must learn the word to effectively proclaim it and be the gospel witness we need to be. But the Spirit also uses the life and the lips of the believer. And I mentioned both the life and the lips because if the life does not demonstrate the gospel, it's hard for a believer to listen to the lips. You know, if your life isn't for uh, a, a, an example, they're not going to listen to you, are they? So the life and the lips of the believer are important. The holy life has the capacity to either infuriate or melt the stony heart of the unbeliever when used as the Spirit's instrument. And the Spirit also uses our lips to speak forth the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul told the Thessalonians, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. It's not our words that convict, but it's the word of God through the Spirit. It's not our cleverness that saves sinners, but it's the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a digression, but uh, we need to understand that when Christ spoke of the Spirit's convicting work, he was continuing to explain to the disciples the advantage of the Spirit coming for their walk and their work. They were to carry on the work that he had started in their lives. The work of evangelizing. And our Lord tells them very clearly how this was going to be accomplished only when the Spirit was empowering them in that work. And so the Holy Spirit is using those whom he indwells as instruments to bring sinners to the Savior. Now, what kind of work does the Spirit do through the instrumentality of the word and the life and lips of the believer? First of all, he does the work of convicting concerning sin. Now, that's the basic problem, isn't it? Our problem is sin. That's the problem of this world. It's sin. And until an unbeliever is gripped by the sinfulness of his sin and the blackness of his heart, he will not see the need for seeking God. That's why a sinner will not seek Christ apart from the work of the Spirit. His heart is hard. Uh, His sensibilities to spiritual things is dead. His nature is depraved, too depraved to even consider what he needs as as a lost person. And so of sin, it says here in verse 9, of sin because they believe not in me. The root essence of man's sin problem is his own unbelief toward Christ. To really believe in Christ is to acknowledge that my sin is of such infinite problem that only God coming to this earth to redeem me can deliver me from it. To acknowledge in faith Jesus Christ is to admit that the reason for Christ's coming was to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God that demands the eternal wrath of God toward me as a sinner. To believe in Christ is to admit that at my very best I cannot save myself. Nor can any, I can't save any of my fellow sinners. Actually, a sinner will not admit such things without the work of the Spirit, I don't believe. But he may acknowledge that he's done some bad things. You know, you can get people say, yeah, have you ever sinned before? Oh, yeah, I've done some bad things. But I'm not as bad as so-and-so, you know. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't done anything really, really bad. But it takes the Spirit of God to take the Word of God 
and the life and the lips of a believer to work in that person's heart. As Paul told Galatians, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith. You see, the law holds up the divine standard. And it's the Spirit that opens our eyes to see that divine standard and say, wow, I really come up short. The law condemns lawbreakers. We may claim to have obeyed most of the law, but even the slightest sin and slightest provocation of the divine moral law demands that we face all of its full consequences. James wrote, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. We must never hesitate in our witnessing or our gospel presentations to make clear the demands of the divine law upon all of humanity. Secondly, notice convicting concerning righteousness. Verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. There seems to be kind of a twofold implication here at this point. First, the uh, Spirit enables a sinner to see the inadequacies of his own righteousness for salvation. One of the things that Jesus did so often was expose the unrighteousness of the self-righteous. And whenever a man thinks that he has something within him to commend himself to God, he's self-righteous. There are plenty of self-righteous people in this world. You live next to some of them, and you work next to some of them, and, you know, we see them all around us. They're the ones who compare themselves to others, boast either openly or in their minds of their supposed inherent goodness, and smugly commend themselves to God. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple, that illustrates it very clearly. And though the Pharisee was addressing God, he was really speaking to himself or to anyone who else would listen. And he gave a litany of his good deeds and neglected to see his own wretchedness before the holy God. Now the tax collector, he could only see his sinfulness in light of the righteous demands of God. And so he cried out for mercy. A sinner must see that his own righteousness will not stand up to the demands of God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall, be, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20 But also, most important, the Spirit of God shows the sinner through the gospel that the only sufficient righteousness is to stand before God, that will stand before God, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the only righteous person, will now be going back to the Father here in our text. So the Holy Spirit speaks the gospel of Christ's righteousness to sinners. Uh, This is the whole message of justification by faith alone. Christ fulfilled the demands of the law on behalf of sinners to meet the moral obligation of the law. But he also satisfies the requirements of God's justice toward those who are bro- have broken the law by his atoning propitiatory death. Romans chapter 3 again. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, Jesus Christ unto all and upon upon all that believe. There is no difference. And then in chapter 10 and verse 4 of Romans, it says, Therefore Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now the cross makes no sense to people until the Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness. 
the sinner's lack of righteousness, and the Savior's plentiful righteousness. And that's why we resound with Apostle Paul, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made righteousness of God in him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through the word and through believers proclaiming the gospel. And then there's the convicting concerning judgment. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Verse 11. Now there's a beautiful paradox here in this verse. The world wrongly judged Jesus Christ, didn't they not? They put him to death. Jesus already rebuked the religious leaders by saying, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment in John chapter 7. But the judgment of the world is always unrighteous. The Holy Spirit exposes that wrongfulness of man's judgment. But this verse also points to the defeat of Satan. It's interesting that our Lord does not use the military term for overpowering Satan, but he uses a legal term to show that Satan has been defeated and it's been done in a just manner. We are saved in a way that is not only powerful, but it's right. The work of the cross was the most powerful act that ever took place in this universe. But it was not simply a greater power crushing a lesser power. It was the righteous God being vindicated in in the salvation of sinners by applying divine justice to Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. The Holy Spirit does this convicting concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he uses his instruments. What instruments are those? The power of the conviction comes from the Spirit at work through the Word and through your life and lips as believers. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech, uh, did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. You know, as you see the work of the Holy Spirit, first applying His gracious power to you and me, and then to the world, I wonder this morning, can you find perhaps fresh strength to press on in your walk for the Lord, in your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, God never intended you to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit's work and help. And you never can. For even when you do not realize it, the Spirit is at work. I wonder this morning, will you take fresh courage in knowing that our Lord has given you a divine advantage through the Holy Spirit? Maybe we need to stop complaining. And we need to start depending upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Will you as perhaps this morning, if you're an unbeliever, maybe this is kind of an uncomfortable message for you concerning yourself and it's really not strange because it's the work of God through the Holy Spirit showing you that you're a sinner in need of a righteous the righteousness of Jesus Christ and I encourage you to flee to the Lord for he will save you as our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning as we close our